The last time we talked, we were working our way through the story of John the Baptist at the beginning of Mark's Gospel. Today we're going to take uh, just three verses uh, that come immediately following that, and they are the moment when Jesus comes on the scene, um, and he comes to John uh, to be baptized himself. And let's just start by reading that. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. There's quite a bit in this section that we need to talk about today. The first um, is just a, no, a couple uh, sort of comparisons that we need to sort of touch on. The first being uh, what is known as sort of the one versus the many in the story uh, that we looked at last time about John and his baptism. Uh, we noted that um, Mark says everyone from Jerusalem and Judea was coming to John to be baptized. And so there was this large crowd. And today we read that Jesus comes. And so there is the juxtaposition of the many, of everyone, and then Jesus. And that's important to note because uh, it is the role of Messiah to stand as a representative for his people. Um, so Jesus being the one represents the many. Um, everyone else that comes to see John and ultimately everyone else that will come to Jesus himself. Um, the other sort of juxtaposition that we see here is um, in the story of John, the many were coming from Jerusalem and the surrounding area of Judea. And today uh, we see Jesus coming from Nazareth, which is in the area of Galilee. If you're not familiar with the geography, um, Galilee was the area north of, um, of Judea in the history of Israel. We've talked about this a couple times before, um, but there was a time when there was a united kingdom under David and Solomon when that first temple was built. And then there was a split in the kingdom and there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. There was a split for a reason. There were, you know, the, the tribes did not get along um, and they felt the need to break off. The northern kingdom had their own kings. The southern kingdom had their own kings. Um, and there was a lot of distrust that was uh, built up around that event and, and was still going on at this time. And so Galilee is in the area of the Northern Kingdom of what was known as Israel and, and Judea, Jerusalem was Judah, the Southern Kingdom. Um, and so Galilee was, there was, there was uh, Judea where Jerusalem was, then there was Samaria and then Galilee was above that. And so Jesus comes from Nazareth, which is just a small podunk town. It doesn't get talked about anywhere else. Um, and so we have Jesus from this small insignificant town coming from Galilee, an area that was um, still largely distrusted, um, particularly when it comes to topics of religion um, and, and God. So he comes from that area, passes through Samaria, and comes down to see John here um, and be baptized by him. It would, it would be remarkable and surprising as so many things in the story uh, or I find myself saying that over and over that this was, this was, you know, such and such was unexpected, but it was not expected. It would not be expected that Messiah would come from Galilee, let alone a little town like Nazareth. And even later on, we're going to see uh, sort of the re religious establishment and people that want to sort of write off Jesus 
Uh, noting the fact that he comes from Nazareth, certainly he can't be of any importance because nothing important comes from Nazareth. I think that's the actual line. And then we're told obviously that he comes from that area and then he comes to be baptized in the Jordan. Lots to say about that. Um, first, just the irony of the fact that Jesus comes to be baptized by John, that the Messiah, God's chosen one, comes uh, particularly in Mark's story on the heels of John saying that he was not fit to do that. Um, in fact, he says, I'm not even fit to untie his sandals. And we talked last time about what, what that meant and the fact that that was the low, sort of the lowest position in a household was the one that cleans the feet and removes the sandals of the travelers, of the other people of the house. And, and so John's saying that Jesus, now we know who, that that's who he's talking about. Um, Jesus is, is so far above him that he's not fit to untie his sandals, yet here comes Jesus to be baptized by John. Um, and so there's, there's some sort of significant irony in that fact. And then there's the question of, of why. Like why, does, why does Jesus come to be baptized? We're told that John's message and his preaching was of one of repentance. Um, we're again talk, talking about how that means to rethink. Um, certainly it involves confessing of sins and realizing that we're on the wrong path and that we need to come back to God. Um, certainly Jesus is not that and has no need for that. He is God himself. Um, so why is, why is Jesus coming to be baptized? And Mark doesn't say a thing about it. He just sort of lets that hang out there. Um, Matthew will try to say a little bit more about it. Um, and certainly theologians and, and people who have been thinking about this have, have been wondering about this and saying things about this for a long time. Um, and, and one thing we can say with, with good certainty is one of the things that Jesus does and, and one of the reasons we would, we would care that Jesus comes and gets baptized is because it is a, is a symbol, is a, a, an act by which and through which Jesus comes to identify with the people. We've already mentioned that the role of the Messiah is to represent Israel, the people, his people. Um, and it is this moment in the Gospels, and particularly Mark's here that we're looking at, when Jesus comes to identify uh, uniquely with his people. The act of being baptized says, I am entering in your, into your condition. Jesus is not divine and thus over and above everyone else. He's not uh, extra special in some way that he's unlike us. Um, he is certainly unlike us in that he is divine and God's son, but he is also exactly like us in that he is purely and truly human. And it is his act of baptism that um, one, one commentator says binds him up with humanity. And so it is God in the form of Jesus coming to be amongst us, with us, and through this act, identifying with us in a profound way um, that makes his Messiahship uh, sort of true. It is no coincidence then that as Mark tells us, the moment that he comes up out of that water, the moment that that act of identification of stepping into the role of Messiah as the representative of the people, that the skies are torn apart. 
Let's talk a minute uh, about that um, in, in a couple different ways. One is just the word that gets used. Uh, the, the, the word there is, is in the Greek is schizo. Um, think of scissors um, to cut apart or to tear apart. Um, torn in this translation, others will say rend. Um, it is um, it's not merely just an opening. It is more a, a verb that is more violent than that, sort of abrupt, uh, startling, um, just sort of like a, a ripping apart of, of the sky in this case. And there's one other place where Mark will use that word, and that is at Christ's crucifixion when he talks about the temple curtain being torn or rend. And again, that's sort of like a, a violent tearing apart. Um, and so what, what, does, what does that ultimately mean or signify? What's the importance of that? Uh, what does that look like? What, what is Mark describing? Um, we have, um, sitting 2,000 years after this event, uh, a lot of history, uh, theological history, philosophical history, um, and sort of secular ways of thinking um, about God and the world and the relationship between them that, that muddies what Mark is trying to say. We will say a lot more about this going forward, uh, but I want to touch on it because we need to begin to understand this, to understand what, what is happening here. There was a philosopher named Epicurus, and the sort of the crux of what he was saying is that if there is a God, he is far off, and the world that we inhabit is not the world that he inhabits or it inhabits. Um, and even if he could, he doesn't interact with us. So even if he does exist, who cares? Because he doesn't care about us, we shouldn't care about him. And so we can go on with our life as if he doesn't exist. And then that obviously grows into, well, he just doesn't exist. There's another philosopher known, known as Plato, very, very famous and likely you've, you've heard of him. And uh, the Platonic philosophy is, is the one that uh, as secular um, scientists and philosophers begin to sort of gravitate towards Epicurus after, you know, after this event and sort of throughout through our history, um, Christianity sort of grabs on to Platonism as the answer. And, and Plato was talking about um, sort of a, a higher world or another realm in which the true things existed and the things on, in the world were representations of that. And so there was, so God, so the Christian version of that is that God exists in heaven as the, the ultimate truth, the ultimate realm in which everything is perfect. And then we are here on the earth and it is broken and muddled by sin. Um, and the purpose of a Christian life then is, is to uh, accept Jesus and be saved from this world uh, and then ultimately to enter into heaven, into God's realm. Um, but those things were separate. Um, they, they were not connected. And to the extent that God does interact with our world, it is uh, a supernatural, uh, something that is outside of the, the everyday um, laws of nature um, that, that God sort of breaks and comes into our world, and he might do that periodically. He would do that with, here with Jesus and with his resurrection and then with the miracles and so forth. Uh, but in terms of an everyday 
uh, way of living life. We live as if um, this is our world, God is in some other world, and he periodically would interject himself in our, in our affairs uh, through a miracle or some supernatural event. Neither of those are uh, Second Temple, first century Jewish understandings of the world. Uh, they're not early Christian understandings of the world. Um, and regardless of what you think of them, they're not the way in which Mark thought about the world and not what he was writing about. What Mark understood as the cosmology or the way that the world worked, and along with him, um, it appears as though most, if not all, the early Christians thought this way, and uh, much of Judaism as well, um, that heaven and earth are actually two sides of the same coin. Um, and this goes all the way back to Genesis and, and the, the idea that the earth was God's creation and when God rests, the act, the act of resting is to come into his temple and this world was, was to be God's temple. And so he would take up residence in the world, in his temple, we as his image bearers or priests um, and, and, and rule. And so God's rest was God's rule in this world. And so heaven being the realm from which God rules was ultimately to be this world. And so these two things are to be one and the same. And that when Adam sinned and we all have sinned uh, in kind, um, those two things were, were broken and separated, um, but not in a way that separates heaven and hell in the way that Plato would talk about it. It, it makes it so that God is not present in the way that he intended. Um, and so the realm of heaven and the realm of earth have been sort of split. Um, those two sides of that coin have in some way been separated. Um, the temple in Israel's history was the place it, that God would take up residence. Um, and so that physical building of the temple and particularly the Holy of Holies was the representation of what God ultimately would do, which would be bring back into right relationship, heaven and earth, the way it was created. Um, and those two things were together. And so the temple was the place in which heaven and earth met. And so when, when Mark talks about the, the heavens being torn open, what he's talking about here is not a big door opening in the sky and God coming through it from way up there where he lives, but the sort of the barrier that exists now between heaven and earth being torn open and heaven and earth again for a moment here are brought back into true alignment the way they ought to be. And it is in that moment that God issues this commissioning statement, um, a statement of love and pleasure about Jesus. And so it's crucial that we, we begin to sort of recapture and at least understand uh, the way that, that the early church and Judaism was thinking about heaven and, and earth uh, and the ways they fit or didn't fit or could fit together again. When, so when we read statements like this, we don't, we, we don't envision something that um, some secular philosopher has you know, thrust into the church or the church rather has grabbed from them um, we have sort of an understanding of what this ripping or tearing is sort of like a violent coming back together of heaven and earth. Um, and, and in that moment, like I said, come the words that we're about to read. Verse 11. Let's take the second half of 10 first. 
says that he saw the heavens torn apart, which we've now addressed, and the spirit descending like a dove on him. So in this moment, when heaven and earth are brought back into alignment, um, the spirit comes rushing in, and we're told that it descends like a dove, and there's discussion as to whether or not that is a metaphor that just describes the way in which the spirit comes down, or whether or not it actually takes the form of an actual dove. Not important for our discussion here. Um, <coughs> interesting debate, but ultimately not, I don't think, important. Um, but again, you know, you read Mark's language. This is a moment between God and Jesus, and a moment in which um, a, a sort of a tender moment between God and Son when God is going to issue the words that we're about to hear. And now we're into verse 11. A voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. This has traditionally been understood to be a combination of two Old Testament scriptures. Um, we are going to see as we go through the uh, New Testament studies again and again, and we are jumping back into the Old Testament because uh, you have to understand what happened in the Old Testament to understand what it is that Jesus is doing. Um, Psalm 2-7 and Isaiah 42-1 are the two that have traditionally been seen as uh, the, the, the words that God is using here to attribute to his son. Psalm 2-7 reads, um, these are the words of God, it says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, and then the, the psalm writer says, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so there you see you are, you are my son. But again, back up into uh, what, would, what would actually be six. It says, I have set my king on Zion. And so this, this verse becomes for Israel uh, a prophecy or an expectation that when God's king comes, things like this get said. And so the fact that God says this, to Jesus implies that here is the king that we have been waiting for. Um, and then in 42.1 of Isaiah says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. And there is the second half um, in which God talks about being well pleased with his son. And so those words, as God speaks them and as Mark writes them, drum up all of those messianic expectations for Israel. Um, and all of the prophecies that have been surrounding and pieced together and put together by um, the religious um, experts and, and scholars of the day uh, are coming to fruition now in this moment. We also see, and this is talked about less, an echo of Genesis 22:2, which is the moment when God issues the command to Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. He says to him, take your son, your only son, whom you love. And in the Greek version of translation of the Old Testament, the sentence structure and the words used parallel very closely the words that God uses here for Jesus. And you can see, obviously, the symbolism going on there. Um, Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son, um, Isaac, to God. And then in the last moment, God gives a lamb um, in the place of his son uh, to sacrifice. And so um, talk about that mapping on to Jesus. We have God giving his own son as the lamb, which he will not substitute. Um, God himself in the form of his son comes as our sacrifice. Um, and so 
that language pulls those two things together in a very real way. Words are important, and these words are especially important. This is the moment, as we said, that Jesus comes to identify with humanity, to uh, take up his role as Messiah, as the representative of the people. He comes to John to be baptized as an act of solidarity with humanity, uh, binding himself up with us. It is following that moment, those moments sort of compel then God, or in response to that act, God brings heaven back into alignment with earth and issues these statements of love and pleasure to Jesus. And they're important because the next thing we're going to read is Jesus being compelled, driven into the wilderness where he's going to come up against Satan himself to be tested, to be ministered to by the Spirit um, in the wilderness. And these words are the foundation, the base from which and on which he will stand as he goes into those trials. And so it is important for Jesus, not that he didn't know who he was or that in this moment, he doesn't necessarily, we're given no indication that he becomes something that he wasn't already, but it, it is the spoken affirmation of who Jesus is and God's pleasure in Jesus that strengthens him for what's to come. I wanna draw some things together here. Um, Obviously, we know where the story goes. Uh, we know what Messiah is here to do, and we know that the cross is going to happen. Um, death will happen. Resurrection will happen. Um, and as Paul will tell us, that the mystery of what's happening on the cross is that Christ is summing all things up in him, bringing everything back together. Um, and that has very much to do with that heaven and earth split that we've talked about today. What God also does, what Christ also does in, in the act of the cross and the, and the death and the resurrection, the other bringing together that happens is that of God's people. The role of the Messiah is to stand as the representative of God's people. And so that what is true of Messiah becomes true of all people, um, of all people that are connected then to him through faith, of course. And the point of all that the point of saying that through the cross, through God's death or Christ's death and resurrection, what becomes true of Christ is also true of us, is then to be able to point to this passage and to hear the words of God that says, you are my child. I love you and I'm pleased with you. Those are our words. And those often sound hollow. They often sound trite. But we also have a lot of trouble even believing that something like that is true because for so many of us, um, we don't have authority figures. We don't have parents. We don't have people in our lives who look at us or have ever looked at us said something like that. Um, we have trouble believing that there is a God who would look at us and say, 
you are my, my child, you are my son, you are my daughter. I love you, you are my beloved. And with you, I am pleased, I'm proud of you. Because we have parents who would rather be doing other things, who see us as nuisances, who say horrible things, actually, who through their words and actions say the exact opposite. And so we often have relationships with people who ought to love us that don't. And so we are skeptical whenever anyone says that they love us, let alone when they say that there's a God who loves us. But if there is any truth to the gospel at all, if there is any truth to what Christ has done for us, what is accomplished and, and what it means to be reborn, it, is, it means to be united to him, to be reborn like him. It means that when God looks at us, he sees the same thing he sees when he sees Jesus. And so whether someone has dehumanized you, has stripped you of that part of your identity because they have been cruel or abusive or negligent, or they have just never said those words to you, does, does not mean that there is not a God who does. In fact, this, the whole story of Jesus, the whole truth of his message is that there is a God who created you, who loves you. Whose sole purpose in sending his son is to right all of the wrongs, to heal the hurt, There's a Jesus who identifies with us, who binds himself up with us, who draws near to us to bring that God and to bring that heaven and earth back together so that you again, so that I again can feel his love to be made whole and to live with him. That is the reason for all of this. It is the reason that Jesus comes to John and is baptized. It is the reason that he is thrust into the wilderness, which we talk about next week. It is the reason that he teaches. It is the reason that he dies. It is the reason that he's resurrected. It is the reason that the Spirit comes to us to pull us, to sum us back up into his family, into himself, into relationship with God, and, and so that we know that again, and so that we can live that way. The Christian life is not one of obligation or rules or you got to do this because that's what God said. The Christian life is a, is a life of love. There's a life of being loved and it's a life of loving God back because we finally understand what it means to be loved and we can't help but do that. So as we draw our discussion today to a close, may you understand that truth. If you've never heard that, may you hear that. And if you have heard that, but it's fallen flat before, may you understand at your core that there's a God who loves you. There's a God who wants to draw near to you, to teach you, to, to bring you into 
his family to show you how to be truly you in a way that we've never been shown before. May you hear the words, you are my child, my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. <laughs>